Hello, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I had uh, recently a wonderful time talking with Marshall Poe about his recent book, A History of Communications, Media and Society from the Evolution of Speech to the Internet. That came out with Cambridge University Press in 2011. Now, the title really um, gives you a sense of the temporal range and the scope of this extraordinarily wide-ranging book, but it doesn't um, convey um, one of the other wonderful things about this very, very ambitious project, um, which is that it really is a history history, but it's more than a history. This is a project that attempts to develop a theory about the media in general and about the internet in particular. Um, we had a wonderful time talking about this. It's an extraordinarily thought-provoking um, and inspiring project. Um, and it was particularly fun because Marshall Poe, in addition to being um, the author of this book, is also the editor and main host of the New Books Network. So it was great fun, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Marshall. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Marshall Poe, um, the host, actually, in the um, the kind of grandfather, uh, in the or godfather, rather, in the best sense of the word, um, and founder of the New Books Network, which is a real pleasure, um, to talk about his recent book, A History of Communications, Media and Society from the Evolution of Speech to the Internet. And that came out in 2011 with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today, Marshall. It's absolutely my pleasure, Carla. Now, this book, um, for those who haven't yet had the opportunity to read it, it's incredibly ambitious. It's not just a history of communications, which is what the title promises, but it's really also a theory, um, a, a sort of very richly and carefully and methodically developed theory of media and society and history. Um, and Marshall, this seems like a very different, um, at, at least from my superficial knowledge of the kind of work that you've published on in the in the past, um, which has uh, your previous books, if I'm not uh, mistaken, have been in early modern Russia. Um, this seems like a, a kind of a different direction. So can you start us off a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, by talking a little bit about um, your previous research and what brought you to this particular kind of project? Mm-hmm. I should say, first of all, I need you as a press agent. So if you are... Uh... <laughs> If you're available, I, uh, how? Yeah. So, why did I write this book? Um, you're right. I, I'm a Russian historian. I was trained as an early modern Russianist, and uh, all of my previous books were about early modern Russia. Some went all the way into the 19th and 20th century. I guess I had always been interested in the impact of media on both history and societies, particular societies. One of the things I studied when I started to work on early modern Russia was the infiltration of writing, if I can put it that way, into the Russian administration. Uh, Early modern Russians were uh, almost all completely illiterate, except for a very few of them who uh, were trained probably by clerical officials. This is the 15th, 16th century to write, and I was interested to see how they used writing to run the empire that they were building. And so this was something that uh, really goes a long way back with me. In fact, I wrote an article about this that has passed, thankfully, into complete obscurity. I wrote an article <laughs> about how how these how these these barely literate Russian administrators registered. Uh, servitors, because one of the interesting things about early modern Russia was a service state and everyone owed a certain amount of service to the czar. And I was thinking, well, how do they keep account of that? 
And, uh, you know, cause the thing got pretty big and I don't know about you, but I can't keep track of, you know, what I'm doing tomorrow, <laughs> uh, let alone thousands of people across a huge empire. And so I was very interested to see exactly what kind of system they set up to do this because they clearly had to keep accounts on what people were doing. And uh, I spent a long time studying that and laboring in, uh, like I said, complete obscurity. Nobody studies this stuff. And, um, I'm going to, to Moscow to look at these lists of people. They were big on lists, as you might imagine. They didn't really write prose, but they kept a lot of lists. And they put the lists together in various ways and bought the paper in Western Europe and then wrote down people's names and when they served and whether they showed up or not and that kind of thing. And uh, and it just kind of got me going on it, you know, because I, I was just very interested. And then uh, I had the opportunity while I was a graduate student to work with a guy named Albert Lord at I don't know if many people know who he was, but he's a, one of the two people I think that can be credited with um, founding uh, a kind of new theory of of Homer and who Homer was. And Homer wasn't anybody, according to Albert Lord and Milman Perry. He was a, a folk tradition that was kind of cobbled together. And there's a very interesting story about that. And he told it to me. He was very aged at the time. I worked for him. I uh, was kind of his assistant. I was I was meant to clean up his office, but his office was really clean. So he left all these books around, and I read them. And a lot of them were about orality and literacy and this sort of thing, and the the theory of uh, of literacy and how it might or might not impact uh, the way people think. It definitely impacted the way uh, people organized themselves. That much I knew, and so I read these books while I was writing my own dissertation, and I I kind of put it aside. I put it aside until about. 2003. And at that time, I was working for a magazine. And one of the things I was um, tasked with, I was hired as part of a group of people who were supposed to study the magazine industry and make this magazine profitable in some way. And the way to do that was obviously with the internet. So I, I became very interested in what the internet was doing and how to use it in order to make this magazine, which I quite admired, uh, to make it uh, profitable so that it might continue. I think a lot of people don't know that these highbrow magazines, this was the Atlantic Monthly, um, you know, they, they really had for years and years lived off the uh, philanthropy of, of sort of wealthy folks and and the new owner, David Bradley, wanted to see the ship float on its own bottom. So I worked very hard on that, and I wrote an article about uh, the genesis of Wikipedia, which is a, a fascinating story in and of itself. Basically, they just stumbled upon it. They didn't realize what they had at all. And I wrote that, and I published it, and uh, I just became more and more interested in this topic. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up um, getting a book contract to write something about the history of Wikipedia and the history of communications in general. And then uh, me knowing no limits and being very ambitious decided that I had a lot more to say than, than uh, just a few words about the history of Wikipedia. And, and, and I wrote this, this book in, in a kind of an attempt to understand how various communications formats um, kind of marched through history and how they structured society, really. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of how I came to write the book. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, as you mentioned, it's, and, and as I've um, 
said, it's an extraordinarily ambitious project. And one of the things I'm interested um, in, and I know our listeners probably will be interested in, is just kind of in terms of method, um, you, you bring such a wide range of materials to this project. And it's not just print materials, but you know, as we move through, um, we'll talk about you know, audiovisual materials and the internet and um, manuscripts. And how did you manage the research process here? Sort of how did you actually organize your work and keep track of um, all of these different kinds of sources and what you wanted to do with them? It's a good question. The, um, the method I used to construct the theory, uh, which is the backbone of the book, there are really two theories, uh, was your sort of classic scientific method. I would read a lot and then I would tinker with the theory a little bit to see if it explained what I had read. And then I would read more and I would adjust the theory. And that went on for a couple of years until I, I thought I had it down to a kind of framework that could explain why certain media arise when they do and what they do once they arise. And once I had that in a kind of form that I believed to be correct, I, I continued to test it, but it was more or less filling in the blanks, I might say, at that point, just sort of looking for evidence that either sustained the hypotheses or not. I should say by way of background that I'm more or less an unreconstructed empiricist when it comes to these things. I, I had read a lot of uh, communication studies, and I wasn't terribly pleased with what I saw um, because, well, first of all, they didn't put anything in a very big framework. So it appeared as if these, uh, that these technologies kind of came out of nowhere. And then they made all kinds of wild claims about what they do. The, the, the one that I, I really found most disturbing was that somehow they affect the way that we think. And, and this is just, I, you know, this is just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, anybody who'd studied evolutionary psychology would know that this just isn't the case. Although a lot of people, Jack Goody being the most famous of them, had made just great careers on saying that, you know, for example, the introduction of literacy somehow changed the way we think. Well, we just know that's empirically wrong, but it was all over the literature. It's a very sexy thing to say <laughs> that media affect the way we think. I don't know what it would mean. I don't know. I just don't, I have to say, I just like, I, I, I don't know what it means. And the people who did test it and they did test it, you know, found that, you know, it, it didn't really have any impact on measurable um, qualities of thought. Uh, you know, teaching people to read teaches them how to read. It doesn't really do much else. And then, of course, they get a lot of information from reading. But, yeah, and, and, and this became kind of the, the foil against I wrote the, which I wrote the book. You know, I, I, I had, in, while in graduate school, I read, uh, you know, everybody was reading Foucault, more Foucault than you can imagine. It's like Foucault is everywhere. And, and I never understood it. I never did. And I, I, you know, again, I think it had to do with my training as an undergraduate, uh, which was uh, at the knee of someone who was also sort of unreconstructed empiricist and said, you know, well, and I would say, well, what's the evidence for any of these claims? And you know, there was no evidence. And it just, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there was a political agenda behind it, clearly. I didn't really like that. And, and so, you know, I mean, the, 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 the theory, the communications theory, media theory that was available was, was just, I found, um, well, the British have a, a word for it. It's sort of word salad. You know, it's just not, I, it, you know, you eat a lot of it. It's just not filling though. You don't know, you don't know what they're talking about. And I, you know, this was particularly true of, you know, you read every Marshall McLuhan everywhere, you know, I like the guy's first name, but other than that, and you know, he's a smart guy, medium is a message and all that. Uh, but if you ever read anything he wrote, it's incomprehensible. It's just more or less incomprehensible. And uh, he, he certainly was the farthest thing from any sort of empiricist, at least late in his career. 
Uh, and, you know, he's sort of started a tradition where, I mean, it largely has to do with French people, I think, although many of my good friends are French, that, uh, you know, they, they use the word theory in a kind of a strange way. To me, a theory is a set of propositions that can be tested empirically. It's no more and no less. And if it isn't that, it isn't a theory. And, and these books uh, were just full of things which weren't theories. They were just speculation of one sort or another. And uh, I found that very, um, I found it very unsatisfying, to be honest with you. And that kind of motivated me to write the book. Now, I did come as a complete outsider. I, I'm not in a communication studies department. I, you know, I don't have a PhD in media and communications or anything like that. I, you know, really, and, and while I was writing the book, I didn't talk to any of these people. Uh, I just sort of read what they wrote. Um, I think some, some people have taken me to task for that, but I'm a big believer that uh, outsiders um, can really say a lot of very interesting things about uh, situations they don't know anything about because they are outsiders. I mean, I know this is true in my actually my very early um, academic work was about foreigners that traveled to Russia because the Russians didn't write anything down about themselves because they were illiterate. So these foreigners wrote a lot of things. And actually, they wrote a lot of things that were true. And, and, and a lot of what we know is because they were, you know, they were seeing things that the Russians themselves just didn't see. And I think I saw things in the communications literature and the media literature that people who were in the field did not see. <laughs> um, they, they might not be terribly uh, sympathetic to what I say. I, I'm very sympathetic to their cause because uh, I think it's an important field of study. But uh, I, I really do think that I was able to... You know, since I did not come with a bunch of baggage, mm -hmm. I was really able to say things that I just don't think they saw. And, uh, well, you know, we'll see. So that's that's how I wrote the book and why I wrote the book. Right. Now, you already mentioned that um, you have these kind of two theories that the book proposes, um, and you've, you've explained that. One explains why successive media, and this is speech, um, writing, print, audiovisual devices, and the Internet arose when and where they did. And then the, the second component, which is how um, they've actually shaped the way we organize ourselves and what we believe. And so what's really interesting here is that you're developing theories that are aiming not just to explain the history of media, but also quite explicitly to explain something about human nature. Um, and so this is um, this is one of the really interesting things about this book and about the kind of theories um, and the, that you're developing and the way that you are using sources to sort of, you know, in an unusual way, I think, to say something about human nature. So mm -hmm. how did you come to the point where you felt... Um, confident and comfortable to be able to make that kind of claim because that's you know that that's perhaps one of the most ambitious kinds of claims we can make right to mm -hmm. see something about humanity in general especially mm -hmm. as with training as a historian can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that part of the project yeah I had studied evolutionary biology when I was an undergraduate uh -huh. I, I didn't major in it but I, I studied it out at a lot of classes and I, I continued to be interested in it this was the time in which socio Biology was uh, sort of uh, in fashion and um, and then fell out of fashion for political reasons, certainly not empirical reasons. And I kept reading the literature. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of became convinced that it's impossible to develop any sort of long-range theory without some conception of human nature. It would be like trying to describe or explain what a machine does without any knowledge of what's in the machine. You know, that's behaviorism. And it didn't work. And, uh, and so you really have to understand exactly why people do what they do. And the reason they do what they do is because they were evolved to do those things. 
I mean, that's just about as much as we can say about it, is the characteristics and traits and attributes and impulses that we have are evolved characteristics. Now, you want to be very careful about that uh, because you, you, don't, you don't want to say that they're determined, but the range of activities which a, a, a human being engages in is, is pretty strictly limited by, um, you know, by, by what natural selection decided we should and shouldn't do so that we might reproduce more. Uh, and so I, I just didn't see any... You know, if you want to understand why things happen, you have to have some sort of understanding of human nature and what humans do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kind of one of the things that is sort of implied in the book is that humans improve things. There's this kind of um, algorithm. It's it's a nonlinear algorithm. It, you know, you can see it in the growth of uh, human populations over the very long term, over the past 180,000 years. Uh, you know, it's very clearly the case that humans are tinkering with stuff, trying to make things better. Uh, it takes them a very long time. But as they do, as the rate of technological innovation increases, that increases the rate of technological innovation mm -hmm. so that you see this nonlinear growth in human populations is just one index of technological acumen. So, so instead of one, two, three, four, you see two, four, um, eight, 16, 32, so on and so forth. And that's just what you see in world population as well. I mean, it, it was flat, it kind of grew just a little bit for a long, long time. And in the last 12,000 years, it just took off. And this is an index of technological, uh, of technological development because we're really carrying, we've, we've made the environment able to carry a lot more humans. This is what a biology a biologist would say, is that we just increase the carrying capacity of the environment radically. <clears throat> so, so uh, you know, that, that's the sort of, that, that improving impulse, that, that, that attempt to make things a little bit better, really sort of driving force in all um, technological history. So it's, it's actually really interesting to hear um, you talk about your background in evolutionary bi biology. And I don't know if you know this, but I also, I majored in um, paleobiology when I was... Oh, did you really? Yeah. <laughs> I love so, that stuff. Um, so, I love that stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's so, it's actually really interesting to see how that field um, produces historians. <laughs> um, so that's, I think, a, a topic um, of its own that we could talk about another time. But one of the things that um, really comes out here, that now that I'm hearing you talk about your background in evolution, biology makes a lot of sense is that you are interested um, as I read it in um, local groups right and and when we get to the first um, sort of substantive body chapter we'll um, we'll talk about that but the way that you are thinking about or the way at least that the book presents um, the sort of historical shape the, the way local groups shape history is more along the lines of sort of population studies um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about um, if for you there's any tension here between the universal and the local in terms of how you are bringing your historical background and historical training to this project. And, you know, those of us who are trained in, in history, there's so much emphasis on um, talking about sort of local ways that um, sort of universal traits are differently manifested in different places with this larger um, goal of explaining something much more universal and more common, namely human nature. Mm -hmm. So how do you negotiate that um, for yourself in your own work in this book? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. And I think it's one of the, um, one of the difficulties with the way that we train historians is that they uh, basically look at everything at about 10 feet instead of 60,000 feet. I mean, I, I went through uh, what is supposed to be one of the great graduate programs in the world, and I never took a course on world history. I don't think I ever studied anything before about, I don't know, 1300. Wow. 
And, and, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, and I teach at a graduate program too, and I know we don't train our graduate students to even think about those things. Uh, they are all interested in what I would call kind of cultural variations on world historical themes. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means is, is that, and this is a straightforwardly evolutionary, uh, um, process in the sense that new traits are produced. And these are technological traits or organizational traits. They are uh, selected uh, and some of them fall away and some of them are passed on. And this is what we see in the history of communications. I mean, once you invent something like writing, uh, which seems to have been invented in basically one place, maybe two, maybe three, uh, you, you don't give it up. It's too useful. Um, and short of something absolutely catastrophic, like the, the end of the human race, writing isn't going to go anywhere because it's just too valuable. Similarly with print, similarly with AV technology, similarly with the Internet. These things just aren't going to go away. And they all are invented by individuals, by people uh, in communities that then use those instruments to demonstrate their worth. And those and humans being kind of smart people who live off copying, uh, basically they see that and they go, geez, I, I kind of want that too. I want writing too. So I'm going to I'm going to get writing. Now of course they're going to write in their own language and they're going to have different script and they're going to use different inks and you know blah blah blah. But still writing. Mm -hmm. I mean so it's still one thing. It's one kind of technology and there are these variations. Now historians love to talk about these variations. Um but I wasn't interested in the variations. I was interested in the the world historical process of the invention dissemination and then impact of these technologies mm -hmm. because in, in the five cases I deal with, they become universal. Right. I mean, we can see that with the internet, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's a remarkably short amount of time in terms of world history. It's become universal. It's too useful. What's interesting about this though, is even though you're not, um, you're not trying to tell a story about cultural variation you, and you say you're not interested in that you are interested in, or at least the book manifests an interest in anomaly right? Which is a kind of way of showing that people are interested in variation, even if that's not sort of the organizing principle of the book. You see, so I think there is um, actually a really important space and a really important, a space for um, variation of a kind and, and an important work that variation as a concept is actually doing in your book. It's just manifesting as uh, an, an idea that you know, that runs through many of the chapters we'll talk about, about the importance of anomaly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I say, and I think it's in the, the first substantive chapter is that humans are kind of tuned to see anomalies. Right. We really uh, have, have this psychology that loves to see things that break some pattern mm -hmm. and we're just drawn to those things. And, um, uh, it, you know, you see this throughout the history of technology is that people are drawn to things. They're kind of frightened by them, but they're drawn to them nonetheless. You know, it's one of those situations like a car wreck. You got to look, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. now to sort of get us further um, into the book, you start out in the introduction with a really useful chapter that really sets out the parameters that are going to be put to use um, in the rest of the book. And you talk about, um, I, I love this way of phrasing. You talk about three of the groups of media theorists that, and you've sort of alluded to this, um, who have been kind of influential, but not quite satisfying on some level. And so you've already kind of talked about the mentalists, right? Goody and yeah. so on. Um, you talk about the Marxists and we're, and that's going to again, come up later on in the book. Um, <laughs> and the matrixists, which yeah, I, the matrixists, I, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. but one of the people who you mentioned as being particularly, um, influential in terms of the way you're thinking about this is a scholar named Harold Innes. Yeah, Harold um, Innes, yeah. Can uh -huh. you, um, for our listeners who may not, who may or may not be familiar with his work, can you talk a little bit about, um, 
um, him and the importance of his work um, that you found, well, for you and, and the elements that you found most inspiring or useful? Yeah, I mean, if you read the literature of communication, you'll read a lot about McLuhan, and, and you will probably only hear about Innes as one of McLuhan's uh, teachers and then actually um, a kind of peer <laughs> at the University of Toronto, the so-called Toronto School. Uh, and uh, Innes is an, an amazing guy, just really, really interesting. I was very drawn to him. He uh, started his career as someone who's also sort of uh, unreconstructed empiricist, and he wrote these books that were like, you know, the history of uh, fur trapping in northern Canada and, you know, fisheries in Vancouver. I mean, these books are just full of detail. He went and lived with people that did this stuff. And he was writing about he, – he created what was called the Staples Theory of, of Canadian economic development. He became kind of famous. Um, but then for whatever reason, he he um, he started to think about the impact of, uh, of, of technologies on – on the way we organize ourselves. And he was particularly drawn toward media technologies. And this was at a time in which the world of classical scholarship was being upset by these fellows I mentioned earlier who claimed that there was no Homer, really, that there were just a bunch of bards that were doing these things. And then they went on to claim that, uh, you know, that, that the, that the, the media that, that these bards were using had an impact on what was then later written down. And he was quite taken with this, this theory. This is the 1940s. And, and he, he, um, he started to write these these books. He, you know, he, he wasn't actually the greatest stylist himself, uh, but he, he but 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 he had it. But he had a good idea, and the, and the idea was that in order to study and understand what a tool does, you have to know what the tool can do. Mm-hmm. That the, the, now the tool, of course, is just an inanimate object, and it can't do anything by itself. But if you have a tool and a human, then you can start talking about what that tool can and cannot do. A hammer will not drive you to work, right? <laughs> Neither will allow you to fly to South America. It's really good with nails, though. And, you know, I spend a lot of time with hammers, and they're very useful in many ways. Uh, but he said, you know, you actually have to talk about what these things can do in the hands of somebody that can use them. And, and so he took this perspective to the study of, of media, and he said, well, okay, so let's, let's look at, at the media that were available over time, and let's see what they could do. And then let's see how they structured uh, social arrangements. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and 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 these books were, were quite influential. And if you you know the 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 medium is the message is in there somewhere. Uh, it's clearly where McLuhan got it. Uh, and and but you know Innes died tragically young. And uh, and and uh, McLuhan went on to be interviewed in Playboy or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so Ennis is somebody who, you know, he's sort of the intellectual hero of the book. Um, because, you know, again, I, I don't think that, that his insight is a truly great one in the sense that it's sort of common sense, you know, it, to anybody who works with tools, and we all do, that they can do certain things and they can't do other things. And in order to understand what they do to us, we have to understand what they can do. And that's the perspective that I brought to the understanding of what media do to societies and patterns of thought. Now, one of the other things that you're doing um, that's um, strikingly different from what one would expect in in an argument like this, um, and you discuss this sort of in the context of your discussion of Innes' work in in this first chapter, is you're arguing that um, it's important for us to understand that new media are pulled into use by rising Mm -hmm. demand, not by rising supply, right? And Mm -hmm. this um, this is important to mention because this is something that goes on to structure the argument of the entire 
your book. Right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, well, I want to, uh, one thing I want to talk about is how love, how, how, how critics, especially people that don't really understand what they're talking about, lo- love to talk about technological determinism. Mm-hmm. They just, this is sort of your standard thing to say. Is oh you know any any argument that says well you know technology's had this following impact well that's technological determinism and everybody knows that's silly, but you know uh, and it is silly in a way it's true, but you don't you don't have to be any great thinker and I'm certainly not to understand that once you have a nuclear weapon you can do things you couldn't do before, mm-hmm. and that that is that's important now you want to kind of have a uh, you, you, what I wanted to do was have a complete theory of the uh, of of how media arise or technologies arise and then what they do and so the first half of it how they are, arise. Um, had had to do with uh, how they're produced and then how they are adopted. And they're different moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that right now the future is in somebody's garage. <laughs> and it is going to be there for a long time until some group of people decide that they need it. And then they are going to fashion it into a tool that everybody will want. I don't know what that's going to be. You know, the, in, the internet is full of cases like this. The GUI interface, the one we all use now, was around for a long time before. And this is just rife throughout the history of technology and communication that the prototypes of the things that we will all want to use in 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 years are available now. Mm-hmm. We just don't know where they are. And, and also, sufficient demand hasn't been created in order to pull them into existence. It's not as if somebody says, gee, I need a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go make one. They say, uh, I need something to destroy a Japanese city. Let's talk to some people. Let's see what they have. <laughs> and, and, hey, this guy over here, he seems to have something that might work. And, you know, but that technology wasn't particularly new. I mean, the theory was, had been hammered out a long time before. And this is true of, you know, this is true of printing. I mean, you know very well as a scholar of early modern China, print, the, you know, the technology for printing is actually quite old. The technology... Um, for writing, or at least the ability to write, existed long before we could write. I mean, we could make little symbols. You know, we made little symbols a hundred thousand years ago, but we only invented writing from what you know, like five thousand years ago. So th- there was this sort of latent technological ability that was waiting for some group to say, "Geez, I need something that does this," and then they go get it. And in each of these cases, the exception being speech, because it was evolved, that is writing and print and AV and then the internet, we see that the technologies are available a long, long time before. So the technologies aren't pushing. Mm-hmm. The technologies are just being invented by humans that are tinkering. And then somebody comes along, some group, um, and says, you know, I really need this. And so they pull it into existence by demand. But see, the, the process by which that group arises is, is separate. Um, they're, they're not, they're not, that group is not produced by the technology. Mm-hmm. You know. Does that make sense? It does. And it actually sounds, um, as you're describing it, it also makes a lot of sense given um, what you said earlier about the influence of evolutionary biology to your thinking, right? I mean, this sounds a lot like um, a kind of um, acceptation sort of an uh, explanation, right? The sort of feathers, feathers didn't evolve for flight, right? Feathers were there, yeah. and then it was, yeah. you know, co-opted into something else. So it's kind of yeah. spandrels of San Marco. Yeah, that's exactly, um, that's exactly right. I mean, this stuff is around, but the question is, wh- where is the group of people that need it and are willing to invest the resources that are necessary in order to make it do something that it wasn't designed for? Right. And, 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 you know, in every case we see this, this is, this is, this is true. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's changed a little bit in modern times because we have R&D departments and stuff like that, but... Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's still it's still the case that the future is in somebody's garage. I, I guarantee. I guarantee. <laughs> so, so you go on um, in this introduction to the kind of theory and methods. 
that are going to go on to become important um, to talk about. And, I, and I'm not going to be like really specific about this. Sure. Get yeah. into, into this in in uh, the individual cases, but um, to sort of introduce us to the rules governing the discovery of a new tool, or sort of the the pull theory of media adoption, um, and then you go on to outline a set of media attributes that are going to continue to be crucial in each one of the cases. And we'll mm-hmm. we'll talk maybe a little bit about that um, when we talk about the first case. Now. One of the things, though, that comes up here um, that I think um, would we'd benefit from a little bit of explication this early, because also this is going to be put to work later, is this idea um, that you are um, uh, telling us comes from um, a reading of Marx's work, that what we actually do in relation to others determines what we think we should do. Mm-hmm. This becomes, um, uh, comes up as the is versus ought mm-hmm. kind of um, difference later on. And this is kind of interesting and surprising, and it seems important um, to to the uh, analysis. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a... It's a- it, 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 and I think it's one of the more controversial. It was. It was. It surprised me. I mean, we think of ourselves as kind of morally autonomous agents. We we think, okay, this is right and this is wrong, and that's because that's what we're going to do. Now we're not always going to live according to the codes that we make, but you know, we first we decide what is right and wrong, and then and then we 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 act according or not according to that plan. <clears throat> what I say in the book is it's just the opposite. Is we discover there are certain things that we can do, and they benefit us, and we call those right. I mean, there, there are so many examples of this, I can't even begin to tell. I mean, any historian would know that we do things today which people 100, 150 years ago would just think we're absolutely loopy. And, 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 and the reason is because we uh, have ways to do them now that other people didn't have. I mean, a classic example is pornography. I mean, you know, 100 years ago, pornography, bad, very bad, 1,000 years worse. Um, but now, you know, we all said pornography is okay, right? Well, it's because we have a means of distributing it and creating it that is... Uh, not terribly, at least we don't think it's terribly harmful. And so we now have said that's okay. You know, and, and this is a, a, one of the cases in which um, the, <clears throat> the is, that is the, our ability to do this has uh, led us to, to the ought, and that is that it's okay to do it. And similarly with free speech in general. I mean, prior to, to uh, printing, it was very hard to get you know, the word out about things. I mean, you could do it verbally and, and, and there are some amazing stories about, you know, uh, oral traditions and, you know, people running long distances and then dying at the end and saying things. And yeah, this is all true. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I would take a printing press any day. And, and so once the printing press became available, it became impossible for political authorities to, to basically stop people from distributing ideas. And so they, they ended up saying, well, it's good. <laughs> you know, they, they accommodate it. Uh, that, that's, I think, the word that I use in the book. They accommodate it ethically. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what we see happen again and again, is that something that we can all of a sudden, we can do something new. We like it. It, it, it contradicts what we said was good before. And so now we say it's okay. Mm-hmm. Great. And this is, um, I think your explanation here is a, um, a nice um, kind of advertisement for one of the great strengths of the book. I mean, for again, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, the writing is exceptionally clear. Um, I think this is one of the um, most well and carefully organized books that I've ever read, right? It, it's like, at, at the same time, it's both like really, really carefully and clearly organized and very, very, um, your, your theoretical statements here are very, very clear, very precise, and very decisive. Yeah. But at 
the same time, they're built up with and they're sort of supported with um, examples and um, evidence that's in a very, very colloquial voice that almost feels like you're talking to us rather than yeah. writing to us, which is a really nice um, and very difficult balance to achieve, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, I'm glad, if I could talk just about that for a course. second. Oh, of course. That you're, you're right that the book is very schematically organized, and many people don't like this. Um, but one of the things I was attempting to do, and I think I succeeded in this, was provide people that study long-term history in general, mm-hmm. that is what's sometimes called big history, the history of media, and also sort of sociology and the sociology of technology, provide them with a set of hypotheses mm-hmm. that can be tested against what we find in the historical record. And the thing that frustrated me about what I was reading is that you could kind of eke out testable hypotheses from the literature, but it was hard. Mm -hmm. You couldn't really pin these people down. What exactly were they saying? And so when I wrote the book, you know, I made rules like, okay, no relative clauses, (laughs) (laughs) only one comma a sentence, you know, make sure the verb is active. You know, so like I, I want, I, I, I was like, I just wanted to make it absolutely plain what I was claiming so that when people, you know, <clears throat> I like to think of this as a book that maybe somebody will write, you know, that there are a hundred dissertations in it, that someone will take a little piece of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Poe says this. Mm-hmm. And then they go off, they look in the archives, they think about it, and then it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's how knowledge moves forward. You know, and, and so I, really the book is just full of these testable hypotheses. And that, that's why I wrote it in that way. I mean, I'm, I, I want to say that it, with all due modesty, I am capable of writing in a different way. And I have. But in this case, I felt like clarity was what was really needed. Absolute clarity. And so, you know, I was very, very careful about about uh, how I put things. Now, that, of course, makes the book the kind of book you study and not read because it doesn't really tell a story. But, you know, nonetheless, if if someone wants to, you know, cross swords with me, they'll know what kind of sword I have. Right. You know, it's this sword. Right. It's not some other sword. I don't have a gun. I don't, it's this. This right. is the thing that you're disagreeing with. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it does achieve that clarity. And even though you're saying it doesn't tell one story, I mean, it kind of does. And it, it also tells a lot of different stories. Mm. Um, they're just, you know, um, it's the book is trying to do a certain kind of work. And I think what, what I'm hearing and, um, you know, you can let me know if I'm misinterpreting this, but is that you intended to do a particular kind of work. And so you intended to write it then, and I think succeeded in writing it in a, a particular way that was instrumental for achieving that kind of work and other kinds of books are trying to do different kind of work. And so, you know, you write those differently. Um, but that's, I think that's one of the, I love that actually about um, how you're talking about this because it really opens up a, a way of thinking about the freedom um, that we have that we often don't grasp as writers to, you know, to do different kinds of work in different kinds of ways and to feel like we have the space to do that. Yeah. I mean, if you read the, <clears throat> the sort of article that launched all this, and that is that article about uh, Wikipedia and the Atlantic Monthly, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just a good story mm-hmm. of these two guys who, who met online and they had this wild idea and one of them was kind of used to dabble in pornography and he made a fortune doing that. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and the other guy was a philosopher. You know, it's a really good human story about these two guys. And, and, uh, it, it reads like a story. Uh, this book does not really read like a story. It reads like a set of propositions like this happened because of this. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to uh, affirm that you need to find evidence of this or it is not affirmed. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, 
And so it just serves a very, very different, different function than a kind of ripping yarn about how, you know, Wikipedia happened to these two guys because I, I, I don't know if they really invented it. They it just kind of happened. And, and, but it, it's a, yeah, it's a different, it's a different kind of writing. It really is. And I, and I, I know that there was one fellow that, uh, wrote a, a kind of a, an unkind thing. Let's put it that way mm-hmm. about the style. And he was right. You know, it, 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 it is written in a, in a, it's, is the kind of book you, you study. It's not really the kind of book you sit down with a cup of tea and a crumpet and, uh, and read on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I admit it, you know. I mean, if you, uh, yeah, I admit it, yeah. But I, again, I, don't, I didn't know how else to do it. Uh-huh. Well, I, so you just brought up the issue of evidence. And so I think this is a perfect segue into the first, um, really the first case study based chapter um, in which you're talking about humanity in the age of speech. Um, now, these different chapters in which you're looking at different kinds of media culture um, are really based on, as you tell us here, very different source bases, right? Different kinds of evidence. And this chapter in particular um, really interestingly uses contemporary speech groups, so speech groups sort of right now, to develop theories about the first human communities. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that as a a kind of evidence for um, arguing what you want to argue in this chapter? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of these cases where, you know, you can wish there were better evidence, but there's just not better evidence. And the evidence that we have about why we communicate the way we do with speech is how we communicate with speech today because there are no records of how people spoke 180,000 years ago. Chimpanzees can't talk. And so we, we just don't know. So we have to use the way in which we use speech today to understand why it was evolved. And this is something that, you know, evolutionary biologists do all the time. You know, they don't go off and say, well, you know, birds have wings so they can fly. (laughs) They they say, well, birds can fly. And what sort of advantage did that give birds? And how how did it, how was it carried on genetically and and behaviorally through the population over time? And so I look at various characteristics of, of the way people talk and, and, uh, and I say, well, why would it evolve like that? And in that none of this work is original. Absolutely none of zero. It's all cobbled together from other people that thought a lot about these things. So, so that's the evidence we have. And we can either just not say anything, which you know, maybe <laughs> I, I was kind of curious. And so I thought maybe I'd, you know, just use the evidence we have. Right. And in a chapter devoted to the power of speech, not saying anything would seem kind of ironic. Yeah, it would. Seem, yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah, you're much brighter than I am. That would be funny. No. Yeah, chapter one about speech. Blank page. Blank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that's really striking about this chapter too is that this is the first um, case of your in- invocation and use of Plato, both as uh, to provide an epigram, a motivating epigram for the chapter, and to bring us into the story. And this is the first um, case of this, but this is something that then recurs in each one of the um, chapters until the conclusion. So can you talk about um, your decision to use Plato to structure your argument and to structure the book in this way? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you read Plato, he saw it all. I mean, he he thought a lot about communication because he, he was writing and he was in a context where writing was kind of a new thing and a very unusual thing. And, and he thought a lot about what writing did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he wrote about it. And, and I think he was, you know, most of the time he was uh, basically right about writing and, and about media in general. And I think it's also humbling for us. You know, we think we're so smart, mm-hmm. you know, that this guy thousands of years ago basically had the same thoughts we do now. You know, he wasn't primitive or anything like that. You know, he, he actually saw a lot of things which, you know, we should pay a lot of close attention to. And in many cases, uh, you know, we reinvent his wheel. 
And so, you know, when I, you know, I, 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 I read those parts of Plato and I thought, geez, that's, wow, you know, he's, that's just right. That's what this guy says too. And he's a modern evolutionary biologist. And, and so, you know, I, I mean, I think it's important to remember that we, you know, we're not the first people to think of these things or to even be kind of correct about them if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why I used it. You know, I'm also, also kind of have a mania for consistency. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and that, it, it, what's really interesting is that as, as we'll see later, like that kind of way of using um, sort of raising a tool or a place or a particular book in one chapter that then you raise again in a later chapter, but modify it to sort of um, in, to demonstrate the argument that you're making is something we see that and in uh, the case of the British Museum and War and Peace and yeah, I use really these things. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, I use these things examples throughout. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, you know, they're good examples. Yeah. Um, so another thing that this um, that this chapter does, and this is something that I um, alluded to earlier, is it, it sort of sets up the model for the structure we'll continue to see in the chapters that follow. Now you take us through each of the qualities that you have established um, in the introduction as being crucial to explaining your theories about new media, and these are. And I'll just very super quickly go through them. Accessibility, privacy, fidelity, volume, velocity, range, persistence, and searchability. So that's this this sort of quick and dirty list. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mention it because these these become um, the criteria for um, testing the or establishing the hypothesis and testing the hypothesis for each Mm -hmm. one of these cases. Um, Can you say a little bit about, um, if you want to, how you came to this particular set of criteria Oh, that man. was that, yeah that that was very hard actually and that, that took a lot of thought because you know Innes had a couple and then I thought of three and then I thought well that doesn't cover this and it doesn't cover the other thing and I would add them and I would see how they worked whether you could actually um, as they would say operationalize the variable in terms of the media or not um, it, it really took a very long time to kind of set onto the list that you just mentioned. I mean, certain ones are very obvious. Range. Everybody understands that different communications media have different ranges. Speech doesn't go very far. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the internet, on the other hand, goes a long way, and so do radio signals. You know, they're still traveling out into space for all we know. So it, it was it was very difficult to to kind of think about what the attributes, the technological attributes or logistical attributes of, of media were. And you know, I I think that somebody smarter than me will come up with a better list, or will find a way to collapse two that I have into one, or something like this. I don't know. Uh, you know, again, one of the I think criticisms of the book is that it's too complicated. Well, things are as complicated as they are. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know, I I don't know what you know. You're going to tell Ernest Rutherford or somebody would well, use that atom model? That's like you know, just can you can you dumb that down a little bit because I can't wrap my mind around that. Um, I mean, you know, just that that's the way it is, and and. That's what these things do. I, 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 I'm sorry, it's complicated, but it's complicated. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I don't know what else to tell you. And, and and if you think it's wrong, you can actually, you know, somebody think, and I hope they do, they can go test it and say, well, you know, th- this attribute is is really is not very powerful. Um, so we should take it out of the theory. That'd be fine. Sure, I'm I'm game for that. That's right. So, but it was hard. It was hard to, that most of the thought in the book kind of went into just that process is trying to determine which attributes had the greatest, um, had the great, had the most significant impact on the way we structure our lives and what we think. Mm-hmm. And I think one way also to, to think about this is that just as you make the point, um, 
consistently through the book that it's important to think about a medium as a tool, right? To think mm-hmm. about the sort of instrumental importance of this, um, not just the kind of you know essential nature or whatever. I mean, I think that you can also bring that to um, how you think about this list of attributes, right? It's a tool um, that is intended yeah. to do something, and maybe that something that it will do is ultimately you know give us ways to change how we think about what those qualities look like. Or, but you know, but still, I think thinking about this instrumentally is is useful. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now, what? Um, so, if we can sort of, in the next chapter, you move us from a speech to manuscript, and so to writing. And you already talked a little bit about um, the uh, two components, right, of the argument that go on to become important later on. And so you've talked a little bit about the first one, um, the importance of showing that the technical capacity to produce a medium preexisted the medium by some significant period of time. So this idea that, you know, the technology of the future is in someone's garage right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other point we haven't, I don't think we've talked about as much, which is the importance of showing that some sort of macro historical, some large level shift made existing media insufficient for the purposes of some groups. And mm-hmm. those groups, like the groups, engineered uh, some pre-existing technical capacity, as you put it, into a new medium. And so what's important here um, is sort of this idea of insufficiency for me and this idea of groups being mm-hmm. the motive forces. Can you talk a little bit about that, either in general or in the case of writing in particular, which is where this, um, yeah. this ra- is raised? Yeah, I, th- this is, again, none of this is original, and it's all kind of in the economics of innovation and dissemination of new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all drawn from the, those theories. Uh, and, you know, I, you, you've stated that the, <clears throat> the basic um, propositions extraordinarily well, and that is that there's this pre-existing technical capacity of some sort. And then uh, whatever exists that serves whatever purpose becomes insufficient, Mm-hmm. And then some group arises that recognizes that inefficiency or insufficiency and then adopts or finds and re-engineers. That's the important thing, not invent, re-engineers this existing technology. I mean, I'll talk about writing in a second, but a classic example of this is Apple computers. They never invented anything, <laughs> ever. I mean, Steve Jobs never invented a thing. Right. Every single thing that you, you know, all, all of it is is designed, as far as I can tell, by engineers in Asia. <laughs> and, they, and he, you know, he cobbled it together. And, and, you know, he has a great fan base of people who are willing to spend. And, they're, again, it's a good example. They're willing to spend more money. And these groups all have to be willing to spend more money or more resources on whatever this new thing is. They basically have to take a loss in order for it to be adopted. Because if everybody acted conservatively and just did whatever everybody else did, then these things would never it would never be disseminated. They'd never be re-engineered. And you know, Apple is a good example of that. And I'm one of these people too. You know, I was buying Apple computers when they're twice as much as a PC that did almost the same thing. You know, and Apple's taking all that dough and then reinvesting it in these Asian engineers that were inventing the future in garages in China. <laughs> so, <laughs> perfect example. But in terms of writing, uh, the technical capacity to write existed. We know existed a long, long time before writing because humans made symbols. You know, uh, I mean, the earliest symbols we. They keep finding earlier ones, but you know, thirty thousand years ago, we, we know that they were drawing on cave walls and things like this. And then, you know, that's what writing is: it's making symbols and it's symbolic activity externalized, as opposed to you know, sort of thinking about stuff which is internalized. And so, we know that they could do it. Uh, the question was whether they had any reason to do it, and they didn't. Um, they didn't until the invention of agriculture. And then, a little bit like the Russians I was talking about before, they had things they really had to keep track of. And, and that was basically, you know, who was giving what to the temple. 
And, you know, we see in these, these sort of the, the oldest forms of writing are all lists. They're just lists of stuff. Uh, and they're lists of stuff created by state agents. That's the group that adopts writing because they're interested in keeping accounts for, for you know, for, for cultural reasons because it's fair. And people want to know that, you know, that they're they get a receipt for what they deposited in the temple or, or the storehouse or whatever it was. Uh, or that if there's a sale, that they get a receipt for the sale. So that in case anything comes up, they can go to court and, and, and uh, you know, get some sort of uh, uh, satisfaction, but you know this 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 use of writing though, and it's always the first use of writing. It's very instrumental. It's all about aiding memory. Mm-hmm. Um, these, <laughs> it's not writing like you know. Uh, uh, you know, Hemingway. <laughs> it's, it's, it's writing like laundry list, and and it's a it's an aid to memory. It's not nothing more than that. And you know, I and mean, one of the things you find is is that you know before five thousand, I don't know, before three thousand years ago, literature is very rare. Mm-hmm. But literature is very rare in general. And people use writing as an instrument. It's an aid to memory, and uh, and and that's how they did it. And this group of people, these state agents, found it useful to. Um, and also merchants found it useful to to uh, to invest in this stuff, and uh, a little bit like businesses invested in computers after World War II. Do you have any idea how much a mainframe computer cost? My God, no idea. It was an incredible amount, incredible. Um, and, I mean, really amazing. And, but they, you know, they spent a huge amount of money on these huge mainframe computers, and, and nobody else could afford them, obviously. But and it's thanks to them that technology continued to, to evolve. And it's thanks to these state agents 5,000 years ago who said, yeah, we've got to keep track of who puts what in the temple, um, that, that we, you know, that writing continued to develop. And what's so ironic in this chapter is that this is, um, even though this is a chapter about writing, this is also, I, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, the first time where you mention, um, again, a trope that's going to recur throughout the book, which is the fact that humans don't really like to read or write. Yeah, they don't. They don't like to read or write. That's, it's a sort of dirty secret. I've, I've written quite a bit about this now. And, um, yeah, I mean it's a problem. It's I mean I could go on and on about this, but uh yeah, they we are not evolved to read. <laughs> There's no question about it. I mean I I I, I you know to to wax personal for a second. It took me a long time to learn to read. I have some pretty severe dyslexia. <laughs> and I didn't learn to read until uh I don't know, second or third grade. And I still have some difficulty reading. Kind of have to conditions have to be just right mm-hmm. um, for me to read. I can do it effectively, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I I uh it's not, I mean, as I often tell people, we've been running an experiment for the past roughly 70 years where we've given people the opportunity to watch TV or read at equal cost. Mm-hmm. And what have they chosen? Well, they watch TV for three hours a day. They read for 15 minutes a day. I'm talking about Americans here. Mm-hmm. So clearly, you know, they just find reading not terribly pleasurable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah. So that's why your literature was always kind of an elite endeavor, and and the only you know, and this is something I say later in the book is that the only time you actually see mass literacy, that is literacy above say I don't know twenty five percent, is when the state forces people to go to school, mm-hmm. and they don't do that until the nineteenth century, and only in Europe. Mm-hmm. It was like you know, said, you have to go to school, you have to learn to read, and before that, they, people just avoided it because <laughs> it wasn't any fun. Um, so well, yeah, I mean, so. 
I could go on and on about that. <laughs> well, this is this actually brings us very nicely into the next um, chapter, uh, where you're talking about um, print, the importance of print, and this sort of moves us from writing. But before um, we get there, I just wanted to um, say how pleased I was to see you mentioning John Austin's um, "How to Do Things with Words." Oh yeah, <laughs> oh I love that. I, I yeah, just... that's a, it's a great, it's a great, ti- it's a great title. I just love that title. It's such a great book. Yeah. So yeah. all listeners should read that book. Yeah, it's a so great. Say we all. Yeah, I agree. It's a great book. Yeah. <laughs> so in in the next chapter, you're um, you tell us about um, the sort of the ways in which um, the rise of a I don't know if you want to call it a print revolution or a print culture or <clears throat> technology um, actually you know materially changes society and um, you know our existence within it. Um, can you sort of talk a little bit about what you think is most important about this moment and this change? And also, if you want, um, the kinds of sources that you use for this chapter in particular, mm-hmm. because again, this is, this represents a very different kind of material to base this argument on than mm-hmm. the previous two. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the first chapter about, uh, about why we, uh, began to speak, there, there's basically no evidence other than contemporary evidence. And in the second chapter, which is about manuscript culture, we have some manuscript cultures that still survive and we can study them. And we also have a, a quite a bit of information about classical antiquity, to take the Western example. Uh, here, when you come to print, you really have a lot more evidence. There's a ton of evidence because people were writing about uh, printing even while it was being in, invented. You know, we have court cases with Gutenberg in them and things like this. So th- there, there's just a lot of information about it. So the source base is, is very rich, and we know the history of printing pretty well. I mean, they occasionally cover, uncover something, and it's usually of the nature, well, some some group of people in Central Asia were printing with camel hooves or something. Uh, you know, they were making block prints, something like that. But, but we know more or less uh, how modern print was uh, cobbled together. Gutenberg didn't invent it. You know, he had technologies that he put together and uh, he did invent some new kind of ink, I think. But other than that, uh, he didn't really do much of anything except create a workable press, which, you know, that's pretty significant. <clears throat> and and, and, and uh, it did lead to a, a kind of a new, a, a new, uh, you know, it, it forced something that was already or, or it created the conditions to uh, push forward something that was already evolving, and that was kind of a commercial capitalism. Um, so, you, you know, once once uh, printing gets disseminated, and again, in world historical time, I mean, 180,000 years, it just gets disseminated overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was roughly invented in 1450. And, you know, by, by 1600, there are, there are printing presses all over Europe, and, and you know, if, I, I think they're printing books in um, in Mexico City. Actually, it's an interesting thing. They print books in Mexico City before they print them in Moscow. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think, yeah, it is. Yeah, they print books in Mexico City. So, uh, yeah, so, the, you know, people recognize this is really useful because you can basically reproduce uh, uh, texts pretty pretty cheaply. And and you can you can um, send them to people and they, they have a certain amount of stability. You know, what's on them doesn't change very much and so on and so forth. So... You know, this really, it really helps. Uh, it has massive influence on the political sphere only a couple hundred years after it's born. And, and that is basically when opponent, political opponents get hold of printing presses, they hide them pretty easily and they start to, uh, they start to print subversive things and they start to communicate with other groups in society. And this is the, where the doctrine of free speech comes from because it turns out that the kings who were involved, the kings and princes couldn't control this stuff. And so they basically had to get in the game. You know, it's a little bit like the internet today. I mean, you, you know, you can, you know, the Iranian government can say it doesn't want people to have the internet all day long, mm-hmm. but they're going to have the internet 
and uh, it's going to come through satellites, and uh, there's nothing they can do about it. So they better get on board. Similarly with the English Revolution and then later the French Revolution and so on and so forth, American Revolution, that, that the printing press proved to be <clears throat> a, a very important uh, political instrument. Um, only later did it become kind of an important cultural instrument when mass reading evolved, and that was until the 19th century. So. Now, two themes for me emerge in this chapter um, that are really important and that will continue to sort of gain uh, traction and momentum and, and be important later on. And those are these sort of themes of public and private, right? So you're both kind of showing um, the importance of uh, sort of print as semi-public and re- and you've already talked about the importance of print to revolutions and social movements. But also here um, in this chapter, we see the emergence of um, an attention that you're giving to um, ideas of privacy and in particular ideas of the kind of subversive or um, pleasure guilty pleasures or Mm -hmm. that kind of are um, interwoven with this medium. Um, So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, here's another, it's another good example of how the, um, the is determines the ought. Well, you know, the, the, the ability to, to print books with funny stories in them um, made a lot of people who could read want to read funny stories. And these were of all different kinds. And these were read in private, unlike in manuscript cultures where things were generally read in public. Not always, of course. Or, or in an oral tradition where, of course, you know, you did, some people did talk to themselves. I don't know if they had loony bins for those people. But, you know, talking to yourself is not a lot of fun unless you're, you know, they have medication for that now. Uh, so, so, so here, but here's something that, you know, you can go down and for a few P, you can buy a book. Um, uh, as Samuel Pepys did, that has dirty stories in it. Mm-hmm. And you can go home and you can read that by yourself. Mm-hmm. That's really fun, you know? And there are millions of people doing it right now, even as we speak. Uh, they like pictures even more, so they're looking at dirty pictures um, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and now, again, the clerical authorities didn't want people to, to um, consume any of this content. Uh, they didn't like it at all. And, of course, they banned books and, you know, they did everything they could to control uh, the, the sort of inherent human desire to do these things that was uh, facilitated by this new medium. And they lost because, you know, people wanted to do them. And so the, the, the private sphere that is a sort of private act of sitting with a text in this case and later with images and using it for your own pleasure was born in this era, and this is really the birth of literature as we understand it. Um, it, it, it prior to that, literature had been for courtesans and, and that kind of thing. Clearly, uh, religious texts were not deemed literature. They were the word of God, and you would never speak of them that way. People didn't generally read for pleasure in the manuscript era. I mean, generally, they never did. But, you know, by the 18th century, books have gotten uh, inexpensive enough, technology is good enough, and also the uh, the church has become uh, less able to control the dissemination of them in Europe, at least. And so people start to start to read. Now, again, it's a very small portion of people. It's elites who've gone to schools that would teach these things. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you have to talk a little bit about Protestantism here, too, at this point, because the Protestants are pushing people to read. And then later the Catholics get on board. They want people to read, too. And, and, and slowly, you know, the state gets involved and they want people to read. And suddenly everybody's being forced to learn to read. Uh, you know, I mean, some people want to, but... A lot of people are just like, you got to go to school. I know I didn't want to go to school. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I did not want to go to school. I wanted to play in the playground. And my son does not want to go to school. And he wants to go play in the playground. I didn't want to go to school. <laughs> my grades, uh, my grades in, um, in, in, uh, in grade school, junior high and high school reflect that. Let me just tell you what. <laughs> that I did not want to be there. And I think most people don't. So, <clears throat> But in any event, 
yeah, I mean, it opens up this this sort of private activity mm-hmm. uh, where you're talking to no one mm-hmm. but enjoying yourself. And the importance of this element of pleasure that you mentioned um, really kind of um, continues into the next discussion of audiovisual materials, right? In which um, even perhaps more so um, in the discussion, you emphasize the importance of sensualization mm-hmm. um, yeah. to both I mean, to both this media, this set of media, but also the way these media kind of help shape modern life. And so, I mean, to the extent that I think at the end of the chapter, um, you wonder if, or you, you, I don't remember whether this was you or someone you're citing, um, whether um, the audiovisual culture one day will cause us to amuse ourselves to death. Well, I don't know. Yeah, some, that's, uh, somebody <laughs> Maybe else that was somebody else. Right? Yeah, but somebody else wrote a book called strength. Amusing Yourself to Death. That's I, don't, right. I don't know if anybody's going to amuse themselves to death. But, <laughs> that's right. But one of, the the, yeah, well, one of the theses of the book is that um, is that audiovisual materials are just much more compelling than than any sort of text, be it manuscript text or, or print text. I mean, if you uh, you know if, if you read the word car crash, you're like, oh, there are the words car crash. You probably can spell it. You might imagine a car crash. If you see a car crash, mm-hmm. you know that that is going to have an impact on you. That is going to have a visceral impact. The hairs on the back of your neck are going to go up. You know, your GI tract is going to shut down. You're going to actually have sympathy for the person. If you see blood, you might be horrified. You might barf. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I could tell you, you know, uh, draw, you know, uh, the example I give in the book is a word picture. You know, Tolstoy could paint a great word picture. You know, if I say to you, there was a car crash on Route 91 and six people were killed and one of them was decapitated, and you're like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> if I show you a picture of that decapitated person, yeah, you're going to have a very different response. Yeah. And um, it, it, this just seems to me to be an element of human nature, that there's something in us that wants to watch that we're drawn to watching much more than we are to something like text. Um, and so when these uh, audiovisual media, and of course they're first printed, when they, when they are first uh, made available, and again, the, the context in which they could be disseminated was created by text print because it created the doctrine of freedom of speech. That is freedom of speech in the kind of largest sense, not just political speech. So suddenly you can print pictures, as people did in the 19th century, of like naked ladies. Mm-hmm. That was really great, naked ladies. I mean, these whole lot of hotcakes. You know, these actually used to be postcards. I don't know if you know that. It's great. Like, yeah, the French produced all these postcards, very popular in the 19th century, of naked ladies. And, uh, you know, that, that, you know, we know what those were used for. And, and that's fine. But uh, the, the point is that they were just very compelling. Mm-hmm. And then the people who were producing text realized that if they added this visual material, actually this is something that people knew in medieval times as well, because you know, they had aluminum manuscripts and stuff like that. It made them fun to look at. But, you know, uh, the star is popular, the star that, you know, the, the Rupert Murdoch item, not some, you know, sure, the text is nice, you know, headless, uh, you know, headless body and topless bar. But there's the, the third page girl, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's just no question about what's going on here. Um, is that there's something nice about looking Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it can be horrifying, but anyway, it gets us going. And again, it's something Plato knew too, because he didn't like drama at all. Right. He's, you say he truly feared actors. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was like, if you, if people, if you watch people, you know, you, you see these actors up there doing bad stuff, you know, and you're going to do bad stuff yourself. And this is something that we wrestle with even today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people, you know, pe- people who I don't think have thought about very, very much will say, oh, no, never. No, it won't happen. No. You can watch all the bad stuff you want. Nothing will happen. Well, you know, that, I think empirically that's wrong, but but Plato Plato would not be happy with freedom of speech. He he would say, yeah, the theater bad. You watch people acting badly, and you're going to act badly. Um, you're going to get the power of example. Right. So yeah, I mean, so once the audiovisual um, 
once the audiovisual uh, channel becomes opened because of technology and because of freedom of speech, then there's a kind of a rush mm-hmm. to produce richer and richer audiovisual materials of various kinds. And there's a big battle about what you can show and what you can't. And in every instance, the people that argue for restriction lose. Mm-hmm. And the reason they lose is because people want this stuff. Right. But the, in the chapter, you're not only giving us an argument about um, human nature and what people generally want and, and how they act, but you're also showing us shifts um, as, uh, as you put it, mercantile capitalism becomes industrial capitalism, the bureaucratic state becomes the welfare state, and a reading religion becomes cultural liberalism. Yeah. And this kind of um, sort of uh, this relationship between what's happening on a broader political, social um, level and what's happening to human nature something that also recurs um, in the next chapter, which is really mm-hmm. the, the kind of culmination of these case studies, right, in some ways. This is the chapter on humanity in the age of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're making an argument here, as, as I read it, um, about some way that human nature, right, the fact that we're inclined to like what the internet allows us to do, actually allows and in some way helps create conditions for information capitalism, the surveillance mm-hmm. state, as you put mm-hmm. it, and surveillance is important here, and yeah. a, a kind of cultural privatism, mm-hmm. which then pulls the internet into existence. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I need to take a, that's a great question. I need to take a step back, though, um, mm-hmm. so, so you can kind of see the, the, the unfolding of the whole thing. Sure, I mean, sure. you know this well as somebody that has studied early modern states. I, I mean, I don't know about the Chinese states, but I know about the Russian state, and the Russian state had a purpose. And the purpose was to uh, glorify the czar and make sure that everything were in, w- w- was in accordance to God's commandments. That's what they were about. And, and they didn't really do anything else. Mm-hmm. They were all about uh, pride and uh, serving God. That was the purpose of their existence. That is what they did. That is what the state did. It went to war. It fought enemies. It glorified the czar, and it glorified God. People thought the czar is kind of a god himself. He was appointed by God. People believed this in the strongest possible sense. They thought they were the slaves of the czar. They said so. Um, you know, we have trouble wrapping our minds around this. If we look at the state that evolves in the 19th century, it doesn't do any of those things. And you have to kind of ask why. You know, the state used to have a purpose. It used to be like a, it used to be, there's a self-help book, a purpose-driven, it was a purpose-driven state, you know. And now it's not. Our state doesn't have any purpose except to give us a, a sphere in which we can play around and, and, and seek gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally people say, well, you know, we're an American project, we're spreading liberty, or, you know, the Soviet states spread communism, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But generally speaking, right-thinking people, you know, uh, the, the, the New York Review of Books crowd, it's like, well, the state is kind of a night watchman state, you know, and make sure everybody has enough to eat, a place to live, and as much uh, entertainment as they can get. Mm-hmm. That is the that is the, a partial product of this this of of, of first the, the spread of print and the opening of freedom of speech and freedom of consumption, and then the AV media itself, so that you get these states that have no purpose other than to supply individuals in them with the freedom they need to seek self-gratification, pursuit of happiness. What the heck is that? I mean, <laughs> I've been looking for it my whole life and I've not found it. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking hard. I cannot find it. If somebody tells me, you know, the purpose of your life is to serve God, well, I kind of know what that is. There's a book about it, right? He says what to do. But like pursuit of happiness, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, basically it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you can see what it is on every corner. Um, and, and people are confused by it. They don't really know what it is. I, mean, I don't know what it is either. But the point is, is that it's, is, is that that kind of pleasure seeking became the purpose of the state. 
That's what it does. It makes sure we're fed. It makes sure we have enough to, to drink. It makes sure that we have entertainment. It makes sure our children go to school so that we can perpetuate the same thing. So the purpose-driven state becomes very centered on the individual and on the individual's desires. And the individual's desires in a democratic culture are always going to triumph um, because of the power of the, the, the ballot. I mean, people are always going to vote for more, uh, you know, basically for more liberty so that they can do whatever they want. Not, not exactly whatever they want, but what they were evolutionarily evolved to want to do. And that is to watch stuff. <laughs> really, it's to watch stuff. That's what we like to do. Um, so, so that, you know, that kind of gets us into the audiovisual age. And then, <clears throat> you know, we've, we, we have the internet and, and technologies for the internet existed before the internet did, of course. Uh, and then it was, it kind of burst on the scene in, in the 1990s. Uh, it, although, as I say, it was around for a while. But, but here, this privatizes it and specializes it even more <laughs> so that you can get um, any sort of communication you like in the privacy of your own home produced by other people for free. So now it's the case that, um, you know, it's like a supermarket of, uh, of visual stuff. It's your own personal supermarket. You go in there and you just get whatever you want. Um, there's no reason to talk to anybody else because you can just sit there and, you know, seek whatever kind of gratification you like in front of that box. Now, of course, we had a box before. It was the television, but it had a really limited – there was a limited number of things you could actually um, get. And also it tended to be a little bit more public. The Internet's very private though, right? Because you can hide who you are. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you don't need you – know, what's that famous – Famous cartoon on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. Right. You know you don't. You can go be whatever you like. You know. Um. But you know, angry girl sixty nine is everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, the, the person that you're interacting with doesn't know who you are. You don't know who they are. Uh, they're showing you things. You don't know if they're really that they're real or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it becomes this kind of. It's all. You know. It 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 becomes. It becomes very much like imagination. And and that's really kind of where we are now with it. Now, this a lot of what you've been saying um, is sort of again brings us back to these themes of pleasure, and you, you mentioned happiness before. And this is actually in, in the interest of not keeping you for another three hours, which yeah, for, right, for, sure. for listeners um, who are yeah. listening, you, we easily could do because there's so much about this book that we haven't <clears throat> talked about. There's so much work that it's doing, but to sort of use this as a segue, the the idea of happiness and pleasure brings us into the final chapter. This is a conclusion. Um, about um, the media and human well-being. Mm-hmm. And so what I'll ask you here um, is a question that you yourself pose um, as a kind of motivating question of the chapter and that um, I think you attempt to answer at the end of it, but I'll, I'd love to know what you think of it now. This is the question of have we been using media to improve our well-being or not? Um, can you? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about this? Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is an important question and it's one that we've, in a, in a weird sort of way, forgotten to ask mm-hmm. many times when we study the history of these things and that is we have a tool. Are we using it in a way to actually make us lead um, Fill in your favorite adjective, positive adjective here, a richer life, a better life, a happier life, whatever it happens to be. Doesn't it? And I use the generic term well-being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, not, to not go into detail, I mean, clearly uh, the, the media have made us much more productive. I mean, we now live in a world, in the developed world, where we really don't have to work to make stuff. I know that, you know, and even, you know, even in terms of growing food and so on and so forth. I mean, we produce just a phenomenal amount of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so manual labor is really not necessary anymore in the sense that it was. Not everybody is a farmer or a soldier or a priest. And 
<clears throat> media have been very important in this, particularly in the modern age, because they've allowed us to basically transmit best practices and, um, you know, create a context in which uh, scientific um, scientific innovations can be spread and they can be implemented and we have a pretty good sense of what people want and we have a pretty good sense of how to optimize systems and all this is because of the flow of information and the flow of information is dependent on on progressive uh, media technologies which have gotten progressively better. You know, I mean, speech is good and writing you know, added something to that and then print added something to that and AV added something to that and the internet kind of brings it all together and, and so we really can know almost anything in Instantly. I mean, you go to Wikipedia and you, you know it. I put that in air quotes. So, you know, that in that sense, there's no question that this has made uh, – it has made us a lot more productive, even measured by just the number of people on Earth. We can now carry – and without those communications technologies, this could not have happened. I'm sure of that. Uh, you know, does it make us happier or sort of entertain us? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, uh, one of the things I say in the – in the in the conclusion is that variety is the spice of life, and people do like uh, variety. And the the media is, is really about variety. I mean, even from very early on, you could basically transmit what's in your head out to other people. And since your own imagination is limited, it's fun to see what's in other people's heads. So you know, speech allowed you to do that, and writing a little bit better at more distance, and then AV, and then the internet does it. Um, I mean, print, and then AV and the internet. So it all, you get inside other people's heads, and they're thinking of all these crazy things, and you see a lot of variety. And that's kind of nice because we get bored. Humans get bored, and and because we're constantly tinkering with stuff. So so in that way, that's good. Now the the, the thing I would say though is that spiritually speaking, you know, in, in terms of the way in which uh, we think we are doing what we should be doing and what we're actually doing, I, I, it's pretty hard to argue that it's um it's been a, a, a net plus there <laughs> because we do lots of things. It's made us all into hypocrites. <laughs> the, the internet, yeah, the internet especially. I mean, all of them made us into hypocrites um, for a short period of time until we decided that what we could do, which is what we wanted to do, was right. So there's always this period where we're doing stuff and, uh, you know, and, and, and we're, we're morally conflicted about it. We, we don't know whether we should be doing it or not. It's so pleasurable and you're not going to get caught. So why not just go ahead and do it? Um, you know, steal music, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. The, the, the idea that, I, I don't know, it's just me, but the idea that, that you can just go onto the internet and take copyrighted music and that's okay. And people like Lawrence Lessig say it's okay. Right. I mean, I mean, that guy went to Harvard, didn't he? I mean, what do they teach there now? You went there. I, I, <laughs> he went to law school, right? I, you know, again, I, that's stealing stuff. Uh, you know, that's stealing stuff. And, but he somehow is able to say, well, no, it's not stealing stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, I, it's, it's just profoundly bizarre. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did it. When, I remember when Napster first came out, I was like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> you know, it's the greatest thing ever, man. And I downloaded so many. I can't even tell you how much I downloaded. And I was like, you know what? I just stole a bunch of stuff. Uh -huh. I don't feel too good about that. Um, I hope I don't hear from the Federal Communications Commission about that. <laughs> you but can yeah, edit I, this part out. If you right. Will. You know, I'm not, and I won't tell you about everything else that I do on the Internet, but, I, you know, some of it doesn't really please. You flame somebody, right? You just would attack somebody on the Internet. And, I, you know, you can feel bad about it. And, yeah, th these these are things which, are, you know, that's, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether they're good for us or not. But yeah, that's that's just what I say. I think you pose it as kind of an open question to think about, and I think that's really useful here. 
Um, so, Marshall, <laughs> we've <laughs> taken up a lot of your time. Um, yeah. There's so much more in the book um, to talk about that we haven't had a chance to get to. But is there anything in particular that you want to point out for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it or who perhaps have had a chance to read it um, that you want to, to make sure um, people know but that we haven't had a chance to, to talk about? Well, I would just say, you know, read it with an open mind and think about whether the propositions that are in it make sense or not and whether they are consistent with what you know. That's all. I just, uh, what I wanted to do with the book was present a series of, of hypotheses or propositions or uh, sentences that, that could be proven true or false. And, and what I hope the book will do is kind of create a framework in which people can study the effects of these things and, and that they can do it empirically so that we can kind of know a little bit more about, about the way they operate. That's that's really my was my only in, intent. I, I didn't want to do anything else. So if if it does prove to be a foil, if somebody comes along and says you're just entirely wrong, I was very happy about that. <laughs> I'm very happy. So that, I guess that's all I'd say. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, you know, uh, as you said in the introduction, I I have uh, I work on the New Books Network all the time now. Um, I've taken a leave of absence from the University of Iowa. I don't know how long that will last. Uh, and that, that's really it. I do have a kind of in the back of my mind. I have a book that I want to write called um, "How uh, How to Read a History Book." Huh. And because, you know, I think a lot of people and the part of this has to do with the New Books Network and doing all these interviews is that I don't think a lot of people have a real understanding of where history books come from. Mm-hmm. They just think they kind of fall out of the sky and, and they really don't. And I, I, yeah, I think a short book, how to read a history book might be helpful, but I, I have no time to write anything. So <laughs> well, I'll, I'll assign that um, no. and happily read it and happily talk to you again about it. Um, okay. If you to do that. Okay. Marshall, thank you so much. I mean, as I've said before, this is, uh, it was an extraordinarily stimulating book. I mean, on many levels, I think for those of us um, who already think we're interested in this topic or who might not realize um, we're interested in this topic, I think it, it's, um, it's extraordinarily rich. There's a lot that I have to think about now, and um, congratulations. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Carla. You too. Thanks so much. Okay. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for being with us, and we'll see you next time.